Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar, and we are back. I missed y'all. I missed podcasting. I missed slowing it down, right? Listening with intent. But I had plenty of time to empathically engage during my seven-week sabbatical. I seized the opportunity to leave Germany for the first time since the pandemic changed the course of our lives. I had the pleasure to hop a plane with my little girl and reconnect with the fair city of Chicago and the fine folks who make it the best city on earth. There, I said it. Best city on earth. Fighting words? Maybe. But I speak the truth, my friends. <laughs> I speak the truth. Yo, it was such a joy to share space with all my hometown heroes. To shove tacos down my taco hole with reckless abandon. Yeah. You know, to bring my kid to some of my old haunts. I laughed a lot this summer. I ate a lot, too. It was a, it was a fat, <laughs> fat, jolly summer. And I'm back in Berlin. And I'm back in the classroom with a renewed sense of hope, a clear sense of purpose, and like a willingness and an ability to let myself breathe. Yo, I'm recovering, y'all. Oh, and I should say that I had a chance to wine and dine some patrons of this here podcast while I was in Chi-Town, USA. It was a bona fide blast, although I have to confess, if it's possible, I'm still hungover from that night like three or four weeks later. It was a bit much. It was perfect. And if you want to be wined and dined by yours truly, head over to patreon.com slash for living and give some consideration to supporting this humble project. So Chicago was a blast. I feel like dynamite. I have high hopes for the classroom this year, and it is a bona fide pleasure to be back on mic doing this here podcast. And, my friends, it is an extra special pleasure to announce that this episode, indeed all of Season 8 of For a Living, is sponsored by Cookies and Carnitas. Pop over to Cookies and Carnitas on 5940 North Broadway for stone-fired pizza, vibrant tacos, hearty sandwiches, and seasonal tastings. Everything at Cookies and Carnitas is made in-house, from the long-fermented pizza dough and fresh brioche buns to the braised meats and bright sauces. They also, I should add here, happen to have the best cookies in Chicago. Don't believe me? Just try one. Or, or better yet, try two with ice cream up the middle. Yup, best ice cream sandwiches in Chicago too. No doubt about it. Now that said, the team at Cookies and Carnitas values their neighborhood. And when I was talking with Brad over at Cookies and Carnitas about our sponsorship relationship, I was really heartened to find that he was like much more interested in promoting the restaurants in his neighborhood than promoting his own establishment. Brad's a real neighborhood kid. He lives and works in the uptown neighborhood in Chicago, a neighborhood rich with history and teeming with character. And characters. 
<laughs> like Brad. And the fine folks at Cookies and Carnitas, they want to support the often unsung uptown food scene. So take the advice of the Cookies and Carnitas team and visit Mango Pickle on 5842 North Broadway, just a block south of Cookies and Carnitas. Mango Pickle is committed to Midwest farmers. They're committed to small artisanal producers, and they're committed to making sustainable, eco-conscious choices. And Mango Pickle is back with the 21-day rotating a la carte menus. They're open to walk-ins, and of course, they're open to reservations. Also, I have to say that coming up soon here, Mango Pickle is going to have their high tea. You can get a bunch of insanely delicious Anglo-Indian treats to go along with some delicious chai tea. Now that's right up my alley. That's right, kids. For a living, right here in the heart of Berlin, has generous sponsorship in Chicagoland, USA. And I thought it only appropriate to kick off season eight with a guest who brings together Chicago and hope and the classroom. Nikki Acero is the Director of Strategy and Impact at the Step Up Women's Network. And in that capacity, she develops systems to foster meaningful relationships and powerful communities committed to help girls and gender expansive teens to find their voices and become confident and aspirational. And in this conversation, Nikki and I discuss data and strategy. We talk ambition and burnout. And we explore girlhood, womanhood, and sisterhood. Now, Nikki was my student two decades ago. And as I dive into my 23rd year of teaching, it was a uniquely special gift to reconnect with her. Nikki challenged and inspired me then. And she continues to challenge and inspire me today. So please, join us in conversation. You'll see what I mean. You'll see. Nikki Acero, welcome to the podcast. How do you describe what you do? Thanks so much for having me. You know, I think it's important to share a little bit about where I work first to contextualize what I do. Uh, I work at a youth development nonprofit organization called Step Up, and we really believe that everyone deserves to define and pursue success on their own terms. You know, something that we understand as an organization and the people who work there is that success looks differently for every different person and every different community. And so we really, as a group, want to cultivate inspired spaces where young people can can come and explore what might be possible for them and really be in community with a group of, of people who are committed to uh, resourcing them and helping them achieve whatever goals that they set out for themselves. So another cornerstone of the work that we do is that we really understand that we, we live in a society that's not equitably structured and access, information, support, all of those things aren't evenly distributed. So we really function as a structure to provide 
uh, programming, exposure, opportunity, community for teens and young people who identify with the experience of girlhood and allow them to, to really kind of play with different potential paths that they might want to journey on. So we curate content that really centers um, the experiences of girls and girlhood, that centers the black and brown experience in particular, and um, a number of different intersections of marginalized kind of experiences that we we understand are, are often under-resourced. So um, that's the work that our organization does. I have worked in uh, a number of departments. We have a programs department that uh, really has the core function of delivering on this mission um, that I've just shared with you, really providing exciting, high-quality programming for our community. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time working in direct service there. We have an external relations department that really focuses on, on resourcing our ability to make an impact and an operations department that is all about really strategically and effectively using those resources. And that's where I sit now is in that operations department. So if you think about any organization um, like a garden, <laughs> I feel like the programs department is like the plants, the flowers, the external relations provides nutrients. And then we who sit in the operations department serve as the mushrooms. And so we're kind of like this underground behind the scenes network that's constantly thinking about how do we allocate, distribute all of these nutrients across the garden to, to make sure that everyone is thriving. So for us, it's how do we distribute our administrative, financial, human resources in a strategic way um, to be able to really make an impact. And my specific particular work within there is really focused on that strategy and impact. So day to day, I am thinking about all of the strategy behind the work that we do, what are the underpinnings, and then on the other end, what is the impact that we're making for our people and for our community? So Nikki, I definitely want to focus on your role in cultivating strategies to, to maximize the impact of what happens at Step Up. But, but before we do, I hope you don't mind my asking, like, how, how did you get on this path? You've been with Step Up for a while. Mm -hmm. what, what brought you there? It was kind of by accident um, and kind of by honoring myself, but not really super, um, well, I don't want to say not intentional, but not as a part of maybe like a path that I had chartered for myself. So I grew up in an immigrant family and I'm a product of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, you know, the you can be anything you want as long as you work hard and don't give up on yourself kind of generation. Yeah. And so I kept that story in my back pocket, I think for, for a long time. And I, I kept my head down and just hustled and was just kind of trying to achieve and see, see how far I got, you know. But as I kind of look back, I realized, and especially in doing this work, I realized I didn't really have a ton of career exposure or opportunity. I, I had some limited choices. I had to take what was going to financially support me. And typically those types of jobs, roles were in the service industry. So through high school, through college, uh, undergrad and graduate school, I mostly spent my time outside of 
you know, academics working in the service industry. I was a server. I was a nanny. I was working on behalf of other other people, <laughs> not really my own kind of pursuits. And so yeah. I feel like things kind of were presented to me and I said yes when I could to the things that felt right in the moment. And so the path I think has has kind of shown itself to me. I didn't really go out pursuing it. And so I think in some ways that's why it was by accident, you know? And yet the other half of it is that at every point in time when I could have chosen, you know, like I I have to work as a nanny, I can't take a unpaid internship, but I can choose maybe what kind of family I engage with. I can choose how I show up in this space. I can choose what I take from this experience. And so I spent a lot of time making sure that within my choices, I was always at least aligned with my values, that I was always working in spaces that fueled me as a person and fueled, I guess, the projects and passions that I had. And so folks might not think that babysitting is the the launch of a really successful career, <laughs> you know, but... Yeah. The truth is like saying yes to babysitting instead of working. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like at a grocery store, equally important service work. But I was saying yes to spaces where I also felt like like I was contributing and gaining something and being around young people and the magic and energy of discovery of young people really informed my path in ways that, you know, felt by accident, but at all of those checkpoints where I was saying, does this feel right for me? Should I say yes to this option or that option? Uh, I think those early experiences with young people really helped me, you know, to, to discover about myself that that was important, but then also to say yes to continued places where I could be a part of the lives of young people and they could continue contributing to, to my own growth, my own knowledge, my own life. That's awesome. Now, you ultimately said yes to Step Up When. I know you've been working there for some time. Mm-hmm. When did you first get affiliated with Step Up? I first got affiliated with Step Up in 2012. So it has been 10 years now. I had recently moved out to Los Angeles from the Chicagoland area at the time and was just seeking community. I, I wasn't even looking for work. I actually was working as a nanny at the time. I was just seeking like-minded folks, found this phenomenal mentorship community and decided to join as a, as a mentor actually. And they had an opening for a facilitator position. So I, I decided to join the team um, on their program staff, leading some 10th grade sessions after school for a part-time little gig and they haven't been able to get rid of me <laughs> since. <laughs> I mean, happy 10 year anniversary. I think that's pretty great. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I have some listeners who, who bombard me with grievances, uh, mostly lighthearted that I, I sometimes get so interested in biography and the, the broader narrative that I don't leave myself enough time to dive into the nuts and bolts that in many ways is the linchpin of what I'm doing here. So to honor them and to keep myself on task, maybe we can get into a little bit of nuts and bolts here. So part of what you do 
is loosely described as, as data governance, mm-hmm. like data management stuff. And there is, I imagine, a, a virtual whirlwind of data and strategies to help young people thrive. Definitely. As someone who's been teaching for 23 years, I, I'm aware of the uh, avalanche of data. I, I can't help but wonder like how you describe your relationship with data and like how the, the data informs your work. Yes, it it is such a complex question. And I think I think it's really important to dig into this. Yeah. First, for me, data is relationship work, actually. I don't I don't see a difference between people work and technical data work. Responsible and ethical data always starts way before the collection of any metrics. And it's really about the theoretical underpinnings or the belief structure that's guiding the model. So in many ways, my relationship with data is really about my relationship with the community, my relationship with the the young people that are a part of, of our organization. I think that it's it's the responsibility of a data strategist to to be really sure that we are we're putting forward frameworks and belief systems that are attuned with our communities in an evaluation framework we would call those our stakeholders um and so i think it's really important to to really identify and be clear who who are your stakeholders what are their positionalities what is it that they need from this world? How do they navigate it? What are their ways of knowing? For me, in an ideal setting, the folks who are asking these questions shouldn't be only other and outside of that community either, right? Like the folks answering those questions and building these frameworks should also be of the community themselves. So, you know, first thing is that data work really starts first with the underpinnings, with the belief system, with the perspective and something you know that that I've done since maybe grad school is just ask myself like what would Patricia Hill Collins do? Um, yeah, good question. Right, like WWPHC. Yeah, um, <laughs> make make the bracelet. So <laughs> I think that's that's kind of where we start. And then yes, there there are so many even even within that even once you've narrowed the scope to think you know what what is what is right what is true what is impactful for this community i think even still then how you go through the process is important so uh personally i always bring a mixed methods approach i think it's important to to access big data to connect with what is publicly available to really understand what some of the the major trends are whether those are you know, really nuanced for your community or broader kind of demographic trends, really just understand what's happening at at the like big, big picture, higher level. And I also think it depends on your audience, right? There are some folks who, who need that in order for us to leverage more resources, we need to be able to share quantitative results um, with some, some stakeholders, some communities. On the flip side, the power of stories and storytelling is critically important. The really rich kind of storytelling, sharing experiences, just building community. And so I think coupling those two is part of 
kind of an, an ever evolving process for me, always making sure the underpinnings are clear, that we know what the uh, values are that we are kind of supporting. And then from there, tapping into tapping into every every type of of data, tapping into that big data, tapping into that rich data. So you have this virtual whirlwind of data. We live in the big data culture. You have a lot of access to data, quantitative data, qualitative data, stories and narratives. And part of your job, as I understand it, is to, to somehow manage that data, to leverage that data, to further the mission of Step Up. So I'd love to know if you can give an example of how you're interfacing or discovering a piece of data kind of changed or otherwise informed the work that Step Up does. Sure. So I, I can talk about this at a, a number of levels. I think in, in my role in particular, focusing on strategy and impact, there are kind of two types of monitoring and evaluation cycles that we go through. One of them is a bit more internal. It's our organizational monitoring. And the other one is more about our program. So understanding the outcomes, outputs, and long-term impacts of of our actual offerings. So uh, first, internally, we are governed by a strategic plan. And my responsibility is to really deeply understand what are those theoretical underpinnings of that strategic plan? What is our North Star? What's that vision? And then on a cycle every single year, build an annual plan where I help establish goals that are really specifically focused on understanding what are the resources that we have available to us in this cycle, what is the impact that we are specifically trying to make in this cycle, how do we target the right types of goals so that we can monitor our progress. So really making sure that I am always the anchor to our strategy, our strategic plan, our North Star, our ultimate mission and vision, and then work as a coach with each of the different teams to really monitor all of the goals that they've set to see how are we progressing towards those goals. And there are kind of different levels of assessment that you use. So there's some just purely monitoring of the work where you want to understand, are we delivering what we said we would deliver? We said we would be in 20 schools. Are we in 20 schools? If we are in 15, okay, let's have a conversation about what it is that we need to do to get to 20 or why are we in 15? And is that actually sufficient? Might we need to readjust the goal? If we are maybe needing additional resources, who might we need to bring in to be able to allocate those resources? So I think that process is always ongoing. A specific example recently is we all are are still surviving a pandemic and our organization had to really quickly shift from being an in-person, in-school, after-school program model to being completely virtual for the last two years. And, you know, like many others, that led to a lot of really rapid changes. And so for us, our commitment 
to really serving our community looked like really listening to what it is that they need and want from our programming and understanding to what extent that looks different from the content and delivery structure of our programming previously. So we engaged with a a company that did some research on our behalf, both with our individual participants. So folks who have been engaged in Step Up, they did in-depth interviews, they connected with participants, really understood what their experiences of Step Up have been um, and what they would like for them to be, what they are needing as they're navigating this new world. And additionally, they looked out into the broader research to see, you know, what is it that Gen Z in general is needing? How how do they engage with the world? What kinds of resources can the adults in their lives who care about their success provide? How can we show up for them? And so this, this research project led to then a variety of insights for us. And part of my role as uh, the person responsible for strategy and impact is to make sure that I'm always hanging on to those. And when we have a meeting and someone says, okay, we're going to move forward with X approach or Y approach, that I am kind of tethered to what our strategy is. I'm tethered to whatever our underpinnings are. I'm tethered to the voice in our community so that I can always be the one that raises the flag and says, this is perfect. It is aligned exactly with what our young people are saying that they need. Or I can raise a flag and say, you know what? I'm concerned that we're offering content that is focused on career exposure, but our young people right now are saying that they need stress management. And so is this really what we want to be focusing our content on? Is this how we want to allocate our resources? And so I think often it's just about being in a constant loop of checking in. Are we being true to our underpinnings? Are we aligned with our values? Are we connected to and attuned with our community and making sure that we are carving out intentional space for those conversations from a lens of Ultimately, how is it that we can show up to resource the young people in our communities? Thank you so much for that. You know, Nikki, it sounds like so much of your work is wrapped up in relationship building. Mm -hmm. It's the relationships that you have with your team members. It's the relationships that you're supporting between mentors and mentees in the organization I, I hope I might be able to get you to talk about your role in relationship building and maybe more specifically, like how in your work you foster an environment and build relationships with young women, many, if not most of whom are victims of like really exploitative relationships, right? Like the community that Step Up serves is, as you said, black and brown, economically and otherwise exploited and oppressed. So given that context in particular, how do you do that work, right? That's really, I think if I'm here today with you for one reason, is I want to learn from you how in these times you can foster community and build relationships with young people, young women in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such an important question. And I think it really all starts with the relationships we have with ourselves. (laughs) 
I feel like the most important work that any mentor can do before or while showing up in a space for a young person is to really dismantle the belief that this is of service to the young person. This is truly a reciprocal relationship and it serves all of us to support and uplift those of us that are the most marginalized and oppressed. And so, yes, for me as a Latina, as a queer person, as someone who lives in a neurodivergent mind body, um, this work directly impacts me. It is me. I could have been a step up girl easily. And yet it's not, it's not just about me. It's about the fact that that no person should should grow up in an environment where their dreams are unattainable and not because they don't have the capacity to do them, but because they don't have access to resources. And so for me, the relationship is really about like, what is, what is your relationship to the future? What is your relationship to yourself, to your values, to what you care about? If you care about wellness, if you care about the world, if you care about the planet, whatever it is that you care about, I feel like you need to be in touch with that. You need to understand that deeply and authentically and show up in spaces where you're willing to share that. So I don't know, that that's kind of at like a, a high level. Beyond that though, I think that me personally, I've, I've always kind of lived in the in-between what Gloria Ansaldúa might call the borderlands. My particular positionality has allowed me access to a unique form of knowledge or a double consciousness. And also, you know, I've existed and navigated and had access to a lot of privilege too. And so I, I feel like I have a unique skill set from my experience to be able to build connections too, and to kind of shine a light on the places and spaces where, where we think we might be further apart than we are. Yeah, I feel a little bit like I'm rambling actually. So I'm going to stop there and see if you can maybe reel me in. <laughs> no, I, I don't think you are at all. You're okay. making perfect sense to me. And I'm, and I'm selfishly perhaps kind of glad that you stopped there because I really wanted to ask you a question about the last thing you said, Yeah, which is when you reflect on your girlhood mm-hmm. and your adolescence, what do you know now about girlhood after having pursued all of these relationships and helped to foster relationships with young women, what do you, what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you were a girl? Oof. This is that inner child therapy work right here. Okay. (laughs) Doing my job. Yeah. (laughs) We we call the podcast for a living, but it's, it's evidently code. Seriously. Um, I would love to tell my high school young adult self that girlhood can look so many different ways and there's no wrong way to do it. The same as, you know, step ups, step ups vision that success can look so many different ways and it's up to you and that's okay. And we can resource that. I wish that I knew 
that it was okay to show up in my body the way that I naturally did. I wish that it was clear to me that there are people inside and outside of the community that I know that care deeply about me thriving and I can find them and they're waiting for me and they want to hold me and they want to walk this path together. Yeah, I wish I wish I would have known that. On kind of a related note, like how has your view of sisterhood evolved over your decade at Step Up? Man, so much. I mean, everything about me has evolved and I guess that's normal in a decade, but also, I mean, a huge credit to the community that I've been around. I think, I think if I've learned nothing else, I've learned that community is healing really specifically early on in my work. In in my first couple of years, I worked with a, a group of three other women and we now literally call each other sisters. We are each other's chosen family. Nah, I love that. Oh, I love that too. I'm I'm truly the luckiest. I feel like sisterhood can be cultivated at any time from wherever you are with the right people. And so I think before I used to think sisterhood was just something like you had or you didn't have. And I grew up with a brother. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to have that. No big deal. I also was kind of a tomboy. I wasn't particularly interested maybe in sisterhood too much. I was a little bit awkward um, as a young person. I mean, I'm a little bit awkward now. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like I, I think I just, I thought it was a thing you either had or you didn't have. And I was like, well, I guess I just don't get it. That's not for me. But what I've learned is that wherever you are, if you are in community with the right people, you can make abundance out of nothing. You can make magic together. So I feel really, really grateful to have stumbled upon Step Up and and to have found and been able to create community here. The, the language you speak, it seems to me, is very much the language of empowerment. Mm. And I know you well enough to know that you've done your due diligence and your fair share of reading about empowerment vis-a-vis community. Can you talk about how your work intersects with and focuses on building community as a path to empowerment? Sure, absolutely. I think first, please forgive me for the gentle call out. I wouldn't say that we ever empower people. I would say that people already have power. And what we do is resource them and get out of the way. (laughs) So I think that the ways that we do that really specifically, at least in, in my work, are by making sure that young people have access to the different kinds of experiences and relationships that really produce opportunities for them to practice, to play, to tinker, to explore in a safe space. I mean, hopefully, right, we aim to co-create a safe space that's an ever-evolving and mutually decided upon definition, but we aim to, to cultivate a safe space so that young people who maybe ordinarily wouldn't have had access to this, maybe they're not 
you know, shadowing their parent at the office, or maybe they're like me, they just don't have the time or can't afford to do an unpaid internship and explore kind of like on their journey as they're coming up. But uh, we want to be able to, to make sure that all people from all walks of life do actually have those opportunities. So we curate spaces where people can show up without having to prep a lot Um, actually not having to prep at all. You just register for an event and it's all curated for you. You come to a learning space, you get to connect with different people. They get to share each other's stories, um, hear about what their passions are, their visions, share tips and tricks, um, share really tangible skills too. And then in real time, practice them, discuss them, figure out how those, those skills or activities or discoveries or insights might apply to their real lives outside of the step-up session. And, and you know, oftentimes these connections are, are really short and they're small. They're kind of not the traditional one-to-one dyad mentorship pairing um, that you see traditionally in the field. But following that thought of like the strength of weak ties, we're, we're building a whole resourced community so that a young person doesn't just have their one mentor that can provide everything for them. That's beautiful. We love when people have that. And also we want to provide a community where no matter what it is that you need, no matter what level of support, you just want to come and hear about resume tips, or you need some direct one-on-one coaching through a business plan or, you know, like what your process will be to transition from high school to college, like we got you. Um, We can provide at different levels what it is that you need. And I think the magic of that space really is in the opportunity to to practice things, to gain access to different places, spaces, resources, and people who care about you, to do it safely, and to figure out what are the things you want to say yes and no to, hopefully before you have to actually do it out in the real world. I love it. And I appreciate actually the, the gentle call out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, I do. I, it's valuable to me. I hope you'll forgive me for asking what might well be the most on the nose question in this conversation. I hope it is because it's <laughs> so on the nose. You talk poetically, I might add, about community and about cultivating community. And I might add that a lot of people talk about cultivating community. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of hot air around community. I think that, you know, the notions of community have evolved over time. They've evolved rather rapidly in the last decade or two for better and for worse. I hope I could provoke you to talk as much as you'd like to talk about what you've learned about how we can cultivate communities. You've been doing it for a decade plus. What have you learned in that decade about what I'm loosely going to call community building? So doing community building work for a decade has has really taught me that it's constant work. There, there isn't one 
one achievement and then like when you've made it, you've made it. It's ever evolving because people are ever evolving and community is, it's just not static, right? Like who makes up your community will change because older folks become ancestors and babies join the world. And so community changes. And so if you are not engaged in a, a consistent and frankly, relentless continuous improvement cycle, intentional kind of attunement cycle, then you're probably missing the mark. And so I think that what I've learned about building community is that all of the tips and tricks, the best practices, be a good listener, be rooted in community voice and needs. All of those things are true and constant. They're true and might shift. They're true and you might need to pivot. And so, um, this makes me think of Adrian Marie Brown and some of the tenets of emergent strategy. Not sure if you um, are familiar, but I think something that that she really focuses on is that you can have a clarity of of what your vision is, but just like birds migrate, they know that they need to get somewhere warmer. They know that this place is not safe for them at this temperature with these particular weather patterns, but their path isn't going to look exactly the same every year. If a storm comes in, they might stay for a little longer or head out a little earlier. And so too, should we approach our community building? If we've reached our goal that we set forward, but we realize the community needs more, then we shouldn't stop. If we haven't hit our goal, but life changes, enter a global pandemic, enter racial reckoning, enter, you know, a completely different way of life, then we too should change our way of approaching things. And so I think what I keep coming back to and fear maybe being a little bit of a broken record is that you need to be aligned with your values. You need to be clear where your values are. And if everyone in your community is aligned Whatever size you've built, it could be your family, you and your partner, that's a community. It could be your school. It could be the United States, right? Like there are so many levels of community. And I think what's really important about community building is identifying the values, identifying the goals, and then working together on the approach. How do we, how do we keep tinkering with it until we get there in a way that serves all of us? Right, right on, one hundred percent. Right on. Th- there was one word mm-hmm. that you said in the text of that response, and that and that word is relentless. Mm-hmm. Now, as you know, I just returned to my work as a teacher after you know a long summer break, and even with more than two decades of teaching under my belt, by the end of the school year, I feel downright drained. Mm-hmm. But for me right? The school year has a definitive end. And I annually have the luxury of starting fresh. I imagine because of what you said, right? The the landscape is ever changing. Communities evolve, values evolve. I just imagine your work to be and, and to feel never ending. And you don't really get 
the luxury of the summer break that, that, that I do. I want to learn from you here. Like, how do you stay fresh and motivated to, to mitigate the prospect of burnout? Because, because as you know, a lot of people who do community building work, they get burnt out. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you grapple with the relentlessness of it? and stay fresh and motivated. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't always, I, I have my own cycles and I think part of staying fresh is, is actually acknowledging that sometimes I won't be and being okay with, with moments in time where I need to rest more, being okay with allowing myself to follow my flow and it's kind of what I was, I was mentioning before about, you know, doing, doing your individual work, making sure that I, for myself, am doing the best that I possibly can to unpack the biases, to unpack the systemic oppression that exists inside of me and exists in my own life. So I go to a lot of therapy. I've been in therapy for years, and I think that anyone, I mean, everyone probably should have some sort of therapeutic. It doesn't have to be therapy. Everyone should have some sort of processing space, right? Like everyone needs some mechanism by which to filter through thoughts and emotions and just kind of exist in this world. So for me, therapy has been a really critical part of that. I also am really involved as an activist in my community, I think that part of what can be really challenging when working in education or nonprofit spaces, even when you know the work is so important, even when you love the work like I do, it's not enough. It just isn't. Like that reality needs to be named. It is not enough. We are offering piecemeal solutions to systemic issues. And that's terrible. It feels terrible to have a phenomenal year of teaching and then know that those students are going to go out into a world where, you know, for a lot of them, I mean, for all of them in some ways, and for a lot of them in a lot of ways, that world's not built for them. And it's just waiting to chew them up. And so that's awful. <laughs> that feels terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also though, like we're, we're here and while we are, Again, Gloria Ansaldúan, do work that matters, vale la pena. Like, it is worth it. It is worth it to add your drop in the bucket. And so I think I just, I hold on to my why. I hold it closely. And part of that is that I treat myself with the same grace that I would treat a young person in my community. If they came to me and they said, I can't, I can't do this application. I can't do this interview. I am not showing up for this session. I'm struggling with this or that. I don't have the capacity. I can't produce right now. I would probably offer her words of encouragement. I would, you know, tell her how hard it is to survive and exist in capitalism and that resting is acceptable. It's okay. It's necessary. It's a neurobiological imperative. And so I do my best to um, be able to treat myself that way too. And I think that's the only thing that helps because, um, it's very real burnout is, yeah, it's almost inevitable. I think no matter what 
what you're working on. So I have to be as relentless about taking care of myself as I am about like producing the work. That's my new game. I never actually had any legitimate fear of burnout as a teacher. I was pretty convinced I was, once I had committed to the job after about a decade of doing it, I'm like, you know what, this is, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. For the next decade, I was perfectly happy to do that. And I had no fear of burnout, but two years of pandemic teaching mm -hmm. really forced me to, to reconsider the way I approached the job. And, you know, I, I got ego, so it's always hard to say it, but I burned out and I burned out in part because I wasn't doing the self-care that I now know was necessary. I thought, Nikki, that, you know, being actively engaged in meaningful projects, you know, volunteer projects, doing a couple of podcasts, writing an album, working on a movie, all of these things would get me by, prevent me from burning out. I, but I forgot to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I didn't breathe for a couple of years. And yeah. so I'm um, inspired by you and people like you. I'm, I'm really trying to recalibrate my relationship uh, to, to work and rethink what burnout means. But I will tell you one thing for me and having just returned to school after the summer break, it helps working with young people. Mm -hmm. Like I can feel burnt out, but I rarely feel it when I'm doing the work. hundred percent. You know, I feel it on the train ride home. And I have a, a question for you vis-a-vis -vis that perhaps. Like your mission is clear and the opportunities for you and young people in this community are boundless. I, I wonder like what you've learned from working with young people over the course of the last decade and more that you wish our audience might know. And, and, and just to kind of put a finer point on the question, surely there are people who are listening to this who somehow have arrived at what I think is the mistaken conclusion that, you know, Gen Z is frail or weak or misguided or useless, or there's no reason to have hope. And of course, my experience, by the way, is exactly the opposite. I think Gen <laughs> Z is like the best generation yeah, yet. Badass. By, by far, badass. And so I think there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation about, you know, young people today. Tee it up for us. Like, what have you learned from working with young people that our audience really would benefit from knowing? Yeah. You know, I am a bolder, braver person because of the younger people I have met. Yes. I think so, so much so. I think the way that I have an ability to show up for myself in my own life, I credit 100% to the young people that I have met. In some of the more superficial ways, I dyed my hair pink. I got a tattoo <laughs> um, like in, in my later 20s and 30s because I had never felt like I had permission 
to do those things. I never felt like I had access or sovereignty of my own body, of my own life until I really started to work deeply with young people. And and particularly for me, high school students and young adults are this really like magical place of authenticity and rebellion and identity discovery that just reminded me and gave me permission to just be me. And the ways that I saw that that I simply just existed in the world and that could create space for someone else to show up as their authentic selves. Teenagers did that for me. And so I'm committed to doing that back for them. In in some of the bigger ways, I I came out as queer to my whole family. I discovered that um, I'm neurodivergent and have had an ability to start to like navigate that and discuss that with people without shame. Or, well, I mean, let's be honest, not without shame, but to navigate through shame. And I think that's a really big distinction for me across our generations is that I think I'm kind of in an in-between generation where for the first time, my generation has the privilege and the access to, to care about ourselves and not just be in survival mode. And I'm talking specifically, I think, you know, from from my experience as like a child of immigrant parents, thinking about folks who, you know, maybe don't share my experience, but they are only a couple generations outside of like slavery or Jim Crow, like folks for whom these like really distinctive barriers were our ancestors, even sometimes our grandparents, our parents were in like survival mode. Yes. We are some of the first generations to be able to think about being in thriving mode. And so I think often the pushback, it, it comes from that kind of like, well, I had to do it this way. And so you should have to struggle through it. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't feel that way. I feel very much like I have learned from young people a better way of doing things. And so I've adopted a lot of their approaches and just feel, like I said, bolder, braver person in, in every way. I like bold and brave Nikki Acero. <laughs> this is wonderful. I'm really happy to hear that. I'm inspired by it. And I identify as well, you know, the, the work that I do in the classroom, but also some of the extracurricular work that I do with my students. I have this Ideas Club. It's an acronym for Identity, Diversity, Empathy, Awareness, and Service. Love it. We have a journal. We do podcasts. I sometimes come to their meetings. Sometimes they don't want me there. And listening to the way they talk about, you know, bravery and boldness, listening to the the risks that they're willing to take with each other. Boy, I would have been a beneficiary of secondary education dialogues like that. But as a child of the 80s, we just didn't have those conversations. I'm so down with Gen Z, and I'm glad that we share that. Now, I'm looking for a transition, but I'm not finding one. So if you'll forgive my rather rapid pivot... I find myself still a bit curious about like what your day to day looks like. And while I recognize that in your work, every day can be different. 
maybe I could get you to talk a little bit about like what what you do on a daily basis. Maybe we could just start here. Like, how might a day start for you? Sure. So um, I exist a little bit as a mad scientist and fully acknowledge the epic privilege that I have to be able to work from home and have a flexible work environment so that this can be true for me. But I usually wake up with a good amount of creative energy and spend some time in the mornings just like brain dumping, writing myself emails, drawing things out, really kind of like synthesizing some ideas that I might have had from the day before. And then I take some of that creative energy and spend it on myself. I tend to my garden, I might paint or tidy my house. Once I'm kind of like ready for the day, I will sit down and often kind of set out my intentions or my goals for the day. A lot of times I am navigating between um, kind of like ongoing cycles of maybe project management. One of the things that I do is make sure that any special projects that we currently have ongoing for any initiatives that we are, you know, trying to like implement some kind of specific strategic change I support all of those. So I'll check in on folks across the org to see how they are doing, see what supports they might need. My work then often is is really independent. I will certainly have meetings throughout a day, but I I tend to be able to, to kind of manage my own projects in my own time. I might be doing some data analysis. So being a nonprofit, you you do every level of the work. So I'm doing data entry, data cleaning, data analysis, but then I also might be working on like a board report or a grant narrative. Um, I might be doing research. I might be in a meeting with colleagues where we're debriefing about a program and I'm sharing with them a bit of a data debrief, the different insights that maybe came out of of a survey that we distributed. So like you said, yes, the day-to-day certainly changes, but very often it really um, is a combination of me checking in on folks across the organization, making sure that everyone has the resources that they need to move their projects forward, that they have the insights that they need to make the decisions, changes, you know, modifications that will help improve our offerings, and then just kind of keeping a steady pulse on our our theoretical underpinnings and then all of the data that are coming in and through our organization, making sure that those are accurate, clean, and accessible to everyone. As someone who rather desperately misses interfacing with data in a more regular way, can you talk about what you love and loathe about grappling with data? I can. (laughs) (laughs) I can. Um, I mean, I love how powerful it is for building connections. I love how just like in some spaces for some people, a story is what is going to just light someone's heart on fire. It's going to get them to take action. It's going to get them to join. Ultimately, it it gets them to feel a sense of belonging. You know, for, for many people, the story can come simply from 
an individual. It can come, you know, without evidence and that's enough. And that is beautiful. And that is fine. In other spaces, I think data can be so powerful because it kind of can be undeniable. And of course, when done ethically, right, when not manipulated for like nefarious intentions, it it can be really helpful for decision making, for for handling things that might be more complex. It can help to kind of like bring clarity or to validate a decision or to challenge a decision and make sure you don't take a misstep. So I think it just has has a really powerful ability to provide insights that an individual can't always garner on their own. And so it provides an opportunity for us to see things from the multiplicity of angles that we really kind of owe to our community or to, you know, our students, to anyone that we are ourselves, frankly, to our our mission, our goals. We owe it to be really thoughtful and intentional about thinking through all of the different potential angles. And I think data is what helps us to understand that we've kind of like covered all of our bases. So Nikki, you've been using your heart and your academic chops. You've been investigating and analyzing data about the lives of young women for for more than a decade. You take the work very seriously and we're all grateful that you do. I, I guess I can't help but wonder, like, what you learned from the data about what people who aren't involved in Step Up can do mm-hmm. to step up, to, to, to support the young women around them. Yeah, it's a great question. I honestly, I feel like every every individual person, like especially once you reach adulthood, uh, when you realize that there are things that need to happen in the world, it it feels like our responsibility to to figure out how we each individually can step into the different roles that exist. Um, so I love I love this question. I I think there are three main ways or maybe categories that I would think that adults can really serve as mentors, advocates, allies to young people. The first one is in showing up in in every way, show up as your authentic self, show up for yourself, share your stories, live your best life. Like really, truly, that might sound silly, but I really, truly think that there is so much power in living your life without shame, living your life uh, authentically, because that, that gives permission to others. And if you do that, and then you intentionally take time to share um, those stories, the the good, bad, and the in between, so not just not just your success stories, but also the times that you've stumbled, I think that provides a a space that is really ripe for motivation for young people, and so I think that's one way. Another way I think is focused really on tangible skill building. And this could be, you know, a social emotional skill, like how to cultivate empathy, or this could be something more technical, like I'm a welder and you're interested in welding. Listen, listen to the young people in your life and understand what it is that they care about. And if there's something that they care about 
and there's a skill that you have that might support them in getting there, then see what you can do to connect with them and see if there are ways that you can build opportunities together for them to be able to practice that skill with you before they're going to need it out in the world um, in a place where there might be repercussions for their progress or their practicing. Whereas with you, they could, you know, stumble or make mistakes or, or be comfortable to be a learner. And then I think the last one that I would highlight is in really understanding that like those first two are, are more individual ways to support. Um, but even as individuals, we do have access to some systemic ways of supporting. And I think that when you pull out a chair for a young person, when you offer them um, an internship, when you bring their name to someone's ear, when you put their resume on someone's desk, when you bring them into your office and show them around, all all of those different um, ways of kind of creating space for young people, giving them access, giving them peeks behind the curtain, sharing your wealth of information with them, but in a way that is like tangibly going to benefit them. So make sure that they have an internship, but that is paid. Also, thinking about what are what are the specific ways that you could leverage the power that you have wherever you are to kind of move the needle, even if it's just a little bit more for that young person. Uh, yeah, I think motivation, being your authentic self, skill building, sharing tips and tricks, and then that access, like pipeline building. Think about what are the ways that you can make systemic kind of changes and not just individual level ones. Nikki, that's awesome. What a brilliant response. And thank you so much for it. And I have to say thank you so much for showing up for all of these young people and for being your authentic self. And and that should be enough. But can you share the story of one professional triumph? And after you've done so, maybe share the story of a professional failure. Yeah, definitely. So a triumph, I think of myself many moons ago, actually, and I think this maybe maybe built the pathway to who I am or how I operate now. But back when I was working in direct service and I was leading a team at this time, I was no longer facilitating in the classroom, but I was managing a team of folks who were in the classroom. And we had a field trip to go to a a partner company, we were bringing a bunch of teens. We had been planning this trip for months. I can't recall if it was the week before or the week of, but you know, shortly before the trip, this partner company asked us to provide uh, the social security numbers of all of the teens because they needed to run background checks. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually didn't even hear this request. The request went directly to a facilitator. And so Um, I kind of, you know, moved forward about my business and was planning other logistics for the trip, you know, just, just didn't really even know anything of this request, but the staff member of mine asked for a meeting and was pretty serious. And she typically, you know, was, was not incredibly serious. And so I, I pretty urgently set a meeting with her. We sat down and talked and she was really scared. But she shared with me that she didn't feel comfortable 
asking young people to share their social security numbers, especially because at the time I lived in LA and there's a really large immigrant community there and both for the safety of the individual teens, as well as, you know, potentially their families, they just didn't feel comfortable sharing that information, which was totally valid. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was kind of horrified at that moment that that request had even, had even happened, that we even had gotten to that point, and then that I hadn't known about it and had the ability to intervene at any moment. And then additionally, so like first and foremost, I was like, wow, we have probably done some harm even in just bringing this up. So we need to figure out how to do some repair there. Also, though, we have a paid partnership with a company that is giving us a good amount of money because that's how some of some of these partnerships work is that, you know, a corporate sponsor will give us an annual donation and in exchange, we put on programming with them specifically. And so I knew that bringing this to my supervisor would mean that we were no longer going to go on this field trip. We were no longer going to make good on our end of this partnership, signed contract money in the bank already. And so I wasn't, I wasn't really sure, you know, I wasn't sure if having this conversation was going to be the last day that I worked there. I wasn't sure if this was going to be really detrimental for our organization. And I did it anyway. I had that conversation and I said, listen, I I'm not going on this field trip. I am not taking young people on this field trip. Like I'm happy to have the conversation with our partner um, and explain our concerns and do what I I personally need to do to ameliorate the relationship, the situation. But I can't, in you know, good faith, <laughs> with a clear conscience, like bring bring young people to this place. Yeah. You know, ultimately the organization had my back and we were no longer partnered with with that company. We lost money, we lost members. We had a, a little bit of a financial fallout from that. It wasn't it wasn't super significant, you know. Um, but it it was a decision that I easily could have seen another organization not making. And um, I felt in that moment like something that could have felt like an epic failure. Yeah. I felt like all of us were really proud of that. All of us were proud of having created a space where we could bring up a challenge or a concern. We can acknowledge that we had a blind spot or we messed up and then we could integrate that and in how we move forward. So it's something that, you know, we ask of our partners. Now we make sure that there is a higher level of value alignment and clarity of expectations before we before we move forward with any kind of partnership or um, certainly any engagement with young people. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. That sounds wicked stressful. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it is. Oh my God. But Can I ask? Yeah. Yeah. Please. Is a lot of your work really stressful? Like, do you feel like, because you have a lot of responsibility you know, the the work in which you're involved is profoundly important, you know. Do you feel tremendous, shall I say, workplace stress? Hmm. I think I felt different levels of stress 
um, at varying times. And it has been in large part kind of a function of the leadership at the organization. I'll say that right now we have phenomenal leadership and it is so important to our leaders that we show up as people first in our organization and they really they really practice what they preach. And I think I, as a staff member, feel seen, I feel held, I feel cared for at work. And so, yes, it's stressful. Yes, it's important. And also it feels not as hard because I'm doing it with people who I know care deeply about me and not just like what I produce. Oh, Nikki, that makes me so happy to hear. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful to learn that you're in good hands and that you're part of a bona fide team that shares your values. Um, I'm, I'm glad to learn this. Thank you. Uh, and it makes me feel a little awkward that I, I still want to hear a story <laughs> of <laughs> professional failure yeah. or something like no, it. No, I think um, it's actually a, a perfect connection because I think that the ways in which I have failed professionally really kind of revolve around the ways that I haven't allowed this work to integrate for myself. Uh, a younger version of me, a former version of me, I think knew that this work was relentless, like I said before, and then just met it with an equal amount of fervor. And yeah, I spoke about, you know, the, the tips and tricks and tools that I use to keep myself out of burnout. But the reality is that I've been in a really deep burnout for the last few years. I, mm. I care so deeply about this work and not just this work. I mean, other things in my life that sometimes I, work beyond my own capacities. And I think that my story of failure is in a pandemic life transition to fully being a remote worker. While that was already mostly my time before, I kind of failed to recognize how critically important routine was for me. That has a lot to do with, with my neurodivergence, with understanding that I am autistic and ADHD. And in order for me to be able to thrive, I need to have an environment um, and a set of supports that, that allow that for me. The way that this world is currently set up is not really conducive to um, my thriving as a neurodivergent person. And... I ignored that. I instead changed myself to produce at the level that I thought was necessary or appropriate or required. And so I think my big learning from that as I then found myself just utterly depleted and unable, you know, like to do my own dishes, like <laughs> I could deliver a perfect product at work, but then I was crying in the bathtub, you know, like I just, oh. I, I felt like a shell of a person. And I think the part of it that was a failure, frankly, was like I said, not integrating these own lessons for myself. And I think that's part of why it's so critical, especially as adults, that we are taking care of ourselves and and like beyond a 
self-care fad that's been commodified like bubble baths and getting your nails done <laughs> like that's fine like that's fine yeah, yeah. you know like eat sushi go out for drinks do all those things but like also do the things that are really tender for yourself treat yourself like you would treat that 13 year old that you were talking to and mentoring because like that part of you is also still in there and I didn't do that and I think that was a failure on my part to be authentic, which is one of the cornerstones of what is necessary to be a strong mentor, a strong ally advocate in the community. And so I think it was a professional failure. It was a personal failure, but one that shed a lot of light. I think one that really helped me acknowledge that there's, there's still room to grow. Like you can lead in a body of work you can you can teach something to someone else and still be a student of it um yeah it feels it feels important to share that even even with tools even with resources even with a healthy environment the struggles of living in this society are are not going to go away you know you have to you have to really tend to yourself through them Yes, please. And thank you. And thank you so much for the vulnerability and the authenticity and that response. And I desperately wish for you peace and recovery and breath. And I'm, 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 I'm hopeful, optimistic, even that you're going to recover from the situation in which you find yourself. Nikki, I, I would like to ask you for one more favor, if I may be so bold. I hope you might be willing to recommend to our listeners some type of like cultural artifact that, that somehow illustrates or influences your work. It could be anything. Um, I will link, by the way, to some of the uh, authors that you mentioned uh, Ruckus's finest, Adrian Marie Brown and Patricia Hill Collins, uh, two people who I have a profound respect for. And I'll look up uh, Gloria, uh, what did you say? What, what was her name? Gloria Anzaldua? Anzaldua. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll have to check out Gloria Anzaldua. I'll link to them. What would you like to recommend to our listeners that somehow speaks to what it is that you do? Yeah, I love this question so much. I am a deep believer in bringing in relevant and recent cultural artifacts. So thanks. Um, one person and one practice. So uh, the person is Sonia Renee Taylor, and she has a website called The Body Is Not an Apology. At whatever level, if you want to read a book, she has a book. If you want to join a movement, you can do that. If you want to just watch a quick clip on YouTube or follow her on Twitter, uh, she's super accessible. So Sonia Renee Taylor and The Body Is Not an Apology is one. Um, and she's been incredibly instrumental in my understanding of, uh, you know, like dismantling these systems of oppression inside our own bodies as liberation work. And then a practice, uh, the OM Center, part of the therapy work that I do is a somatic practice embodied work. And I think that doing that kind of trauma recovery as an adult, if that has been 
your experience has been so powerful. And so a little bit of thought work for you with Sonia Renee Taylor and maybe a little bit of body work with the Ohm Center. What a perfect duo of recommendations. Nikki Acero, it has been such a joy, such a privilege and honor really to reconnect with you, to learn about you, to learn about your work. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right, kids. Now, what did I tell you at the head of the podcast? I said, Nikki brings me hope. She's challenging. She's a source of inspiration. I was right, right? All right. So follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if this podcast means something to you and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash for a living. I linked to it in the show notes. You could pop over there right now if you want. I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> I'm just saying, you can. You can. Whew. The first week of the 23rd year of teaching is over. And I still feel fantastic. Dynamite. And season eight of this podcast is shaping up to be, I know I always say it, but I always mean it, the best season yet. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, please, take care of yourselves. Catch your breath. Create reasons to smile. And spread some love, people. It's not too late. Go on with it. All right, all right. I'll catch you soon. <laughs>